they don't want to awaken a sleeping giant. And I have to say, you know what? That giant's not sleeping. And he's already awake. Good day, everyone. Welcome to another episode. On behalf of Disciple of City, I'm Todd Carlton, and this is the Toddcast. My guest today is the Executive Director of Hope Grows Ministry in Haiti, and she is an author of four books, including her latest called Warrior Woman. Please welcome Heather Rodin. Hey, Heather. Hey, Todd. How are you? I'm doing great. Such a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you for coming. Thank you for taking time, coming to our studios and chatting with us today. It's a real privilege. Yeah, it's been a long time. How's everything going for you guys? It's going well. Uh, We haven't been able to be in Haiti for a little while with the COVID shutdowns. And then, of course, they had the earthquake recently and another hurricane and an assassination of their president. And it just seems to have... Uh, carried on to the point where we haven't actually been able to get back to our mission, but we have a staff of about 45 Haitians that keep every program running smoothly, which we are so, so very grateful for. And I, you, you're able to keep in contact with we, your staff? We do. We talk to them every day, pretty much. We get videos of the programs. We get stories and updates, and we're able to be a big part of it, even though we're so far away. Oh, that's great. That's great. And I really, really want to talk a lot, actually, about Hope Grows in Haiti. Um, but can we just start with a little bit about Heather before Hope Grows and sort of how you grew up and your experiences growing up in, in Christianity and the faith? Well, uh, I was raised in a Christian home. Amazing parents. Uh, actually, my whole family, my grandparents on both sides, Uh, We're wonderful Christian people, raised in a very um, God-honoring church, Bible-teaching church. And I became a Christian at the ripe old age of six. (laughs) I was at children's meetings at church, and I really just felt that this was something I wanted to do. It was very heartfelt. Uh, I've never looked back at it as something that wasn't real. And then... I rededicated my life again at the age of 16 when I was uh, ready to be baptized and was really understanding a little more about the decision I had made. Hmm. And whereabouts, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in this area? I grew up in Peterborough, Ontario, and uh, all huge family. And we all lived here in Peterborough. So a lot of times my cousins were my social life and it was just a really wonderful experience i just love family that's so good can you uh so now obviously your your ministry is something that you do with your husband gord so can you just sort of tell us about how you met him and then how how your relationship and that blossomed into the the ministry of what what encouraged you guys to start that ministry uh, I had been getting probably into a little bit of trouble in my teen years, and my parents thought it would be good for me to go to a Christian school. 
but there wasn't one around. So they sent me out to Saskatchewan to Briarcrest Schools. It's now called Briarcrest Family of Schools, where there was a boarding high school. And I had a cousin out there as well, and uh, she was having a great time. So I was really happy to go. And uh, I went out to Briarcrest for the last two years of high school. I think they thought that might straighten me out, and it kind of did. But Gord's parents, my my husband, Gord, his parents were on staff there. So he was what we called a staff brat. And uh, <laughs> we uh, seemed to be thrown together in every way. We were lab partners. We sat together in choir and everything. But we were both dating other people at the time. And we didn't seem to be interested in each other at all until graduation. And just a few weeks before graduation, neither of us were dating anyone else. And he asked me out. And it was just months later, uh, I came back to Peterborough. He stayed in Saskatchewan. And then by that September, after graduation, he had been invited to come and try out for the Peterborough Peets. Oh, and I never so knew that. came to play. And I guess that's when our relationship really did start to grow. And we were married about two years later. So he's from Saskatchewan originally. They're from there. Yes. Okay. Yes. He, there, his parents were on staff right there at the school. Oh, okay. So how how did you guys got married and kids? Lots of kids. Lots yeah. of kids. We have six. Yeah. Wow. Got me doubled. <laughs> <laughs> So what was the inception of Hope Grows? What, what, uh, what drew you guys to Haiti? Well, having had six children, um, we had heard that kids in Haiti weren't eating. Uh, we, had, we knew someone who was living there at the time in Haiti, and uh, he was telling us that kids were going up to two weeks without ever finding food. They were starving to death. And we felt like, children should get to eat. So we started sending money and um, just basically for feeding kids. But pretty soon we thought, you know, maybe we should have a presence there you know, just to see what our money's doing and make sure it's doing what we think it should. And so we, um, Gord went and some three of our children went and they came back with horrific stories and we just knew we had to do more. So we, uh, Right after the earthquake, we went to do earthquake relief. And by this time, we had already applied with the Canadian government for uh, charitable status. It, that is a long time coming. So we were waiting. It took um, two years to get our charitable status. So even though we had started sending money in 2006, and we weren't actually both physically working there until 2010, uh, those four years, we had been raising money and sending money. And then we got our status, and we were ready to go. So we started telling people what we were doing. We met an amazing Haitian man in Haiti. His name is Julio Zamor. And he is a godly man, had an incredible personal story, which is the first book I wrote, Prince of Voodoo. And he, we got him to help us find a piece of land because really you have to be a national to be able to buy a land in Haiti. So he found us a beautiful five acre piece of land and uh, helped us with the government to get that in place and paid our fees. And we decided to start a real mission 
that would feed kids every single day, elderly. They are the ones, too, that are abandoned. Um, family can walk by grandma every day and even offer her a drink of water. So we had seen so many abandoned elderly that we started a program with that. We were very invested in education, so we started school. And uh, at this to this day, we have five schools now in Haiti and um, almost a 1,000 students. So we're really grateful for that privilege. We feed about 300 kids every day on the compound, and uh, we have about 45 maybe in our elderly program. And then we realized that there's no medical care. We went to visit a, what was called a hospital, but they had one wheelchair made out of an old lawn chair and no medication, no doctors, so we realized that we really need medical care. So we started fundraising and started, and we have a medical clinic now on our compound as well. We have a very active church, amazing church. And we um, also have English school, music school. We do home building and repairs. And they have so many hurricanes that that's a huge thing. So these are all things. So basically we say we feed, clothe, house, educate, and provide medical care. And uh, it's a very active mission right now. And we are so, uh, we just find it such a privilege to be even have the smallest part in this. At, at the very beginning, we thought, how are we going to raise money? And we tried to plan some fundraisers. And none of them made one dollar. Mm. Like, it was unbelievable. We thought, well, we, we really suck at this. Like, what are we going to do to raise money? So we decided to say, you know what, God, this is your mission. This has nothing to do with us. If we hadn't stepped forward to do this, you would have had someone else. So if this is your mission, can you provide? And my goodness, he's provided every dollar for every budget we've had every year, no matter how much it grows, every dollar comes in. And uh, we've been able to continue. And it's making such a difference there, especially with our our um, pastor and field director, Julio, who is a solid man of God, and is making sure that Jesus' name is lifted up every day on that little compound. That's so good. And and it's uh, it's an, in a mountain town, right? Well, there are a lot of mountains all down to the middle of Haiti. Yeah. So we are actually on the ocean, and we but we can see the mountains from our rooftop. So we, we do lots of worship and um, prayer time and things up on the roof of our, our guest lodge. And we can see the beautiful mountains. They're very close. And we have one school. We have, well, we just, actually, we have probably two schools in the mountains now. So we're, we're, it's still in our area of Grand Guave. Yeah. But we're not, our, our compound actually isn't in the mountains. But you're going into those areas to, per, to serve the people. Yeah, okay. Yes, we do. Yeah. Um, did anything specific bring you to that particular location? That's, I guess, where we had first started sending money to feed kids. So we just, that's where we went after the earthquake. Because of the connection to the person you knew there? Uh, yes. Okay. So, and that's where we met Julio. Um, at that time, he was the director of the mayor's office, and uh, that's how we met him. And that, that we found out this man's story is such an incredible story that we were spellbound listening to him tell us. And we just really felt God impressing in on us that this man is the one we were looking for 
to to lead that. We we really don't totally understand the culture there, but Julio did. He was born into it, raised into it. It, it is a very different culture than anything we'd ever experienced before or most people have. Um, I, I'm sure most people know that voodoo is the nat- national religion there, and voodoo is Satan worship. So every home uh, is either practicing or knows well about voodoo, and every child learns about Satan, who they call Jab, there, mm. and they learn about Jab from day one. And not many of them hear about Jesus. So it was uh, just part of our journey that God took us on to, to start developing this mission. But while we were there, we learned so much about the spiritual realm that we had never known before. So when you first started going there, as we were talking before we, we came in the studio here, um, in, the, in the upbringing that you grew up in and it actually whatever denomination here in North America doesn't seem like we ever because I can't say that I know really anything about voodoo (laughs) and we don't really seem to talk too much about demonic stuff so growing up however you did when you first started going down to Haiti and actually being present on the ground what what were some things that that really stood out to you or what what started to uh, change your perspective on that well, it was pretty much a grand slam when we got there because everything is is about Satan there. Mm. He's very powerful. He's out front. We don't talk about him very much here in North America. We don't acknowledge him very often in our conversations. But in Haiti, he is the, um, I don't know, he's not the spiritual leader because God is always in control, but he reigns in so many areas of their lives and their culture and their homes that it was quite a shock to us to learn. I did grow up in a Christian home, but I didn't hear very much about the devil. I didn't hear, um, I didn't know about spiritual warfare. I had no clue what that was. I don't think I understood any of Satan's um, strategies or those fiery darts that the Bible tells us about. I, don't, I didn't understand his role and how powerful he is. Uh, we just kind of didn't talk about it. So getting to Haiti and it being talked about all the time and hearing people's stories of redemption out of uh, satanic life, um, many of the children there are actually dedicated to Satan at birth. And Julio Zamor, our field director, who had an incredible story of redemption, uh, he would tell us about many things. And I know in my own experiences, as I would go and visit babies, which I'm, we were talking about a little earlier, how I, we would do baby visitations and hold them in our arms and pray over them and claim them for the kingdom of God, because we know many of them are born into satanic homes and families. Uh, this one uh, baby I held, brand new baby, it was a very dark home. The mother was, um, we could feel satanic presence all around us but I took it and walked away and as I was rocking it and praying over this baby and claiming it for the kingdom of God and taking it from any authority Satan had over it 
and claiming God's will for this child because God is still creator of all things, and this baby was his. So as I was claiming this child for for God, it was trembling. It was just shaking violently in my arms until I said amen, and then it stopped. So the warfare already in this little tiny baby was just another lesson to me that I need to be aware of where I am. I need to learn more about this kingdom of darkness. I need to know what uh, God is saying to me through scripture about this and what God is telling me to do and what he has enabled me to do and the power he has given me and the authority he's given me. So that started a huge journey for me and uh, studying and reading and and interviewing uh, Haitian people that had been born into demonism and redeemed by God. Their stories were just so impactful in my life. And it changed my direction even as I came home back to North America, meeting meeting up with my Christian friends even, that I would see them struggling with things that I had already seen in Haiti, that those are satanic strategies. Those are attacks of the enemy. And we were so naive here by not giving him any credit for anything, ignoring his presence. And many times I found that people would say, well, I don't want to disturb him, so if I just leave him alone, I think he'll leave me alone. They don't want to awaken a sleeping giant. And I have to say, you know what, that giant's not sleeping. And he's already awake. And he's he's on the prowl. And so I, that's why I wrote the, the um, Warrior Woman, too, because it was just, I wanted my friends and um, my fellow Christian women to know more and to be empowered and to be given that authority and take that authority that we've been given over him and see some victory in their life. We want to have victory. We we have that. It's already been given to us by Jesus' death on the cross. He dealt with that already. Yeah. And uh, so he gives us that, and we just need to take it. Authority is nothing if we don't take it. And Satan knows who's, who's stepping up and taking authority and who isn't. And he is going to do the best he can to bring down the people that have no clue of what God has done for us on the cross. Yeah. Um, when you guys first started to, to go there, so before you, now you have a, a compound that you go and, and stay at, but initially when you first started to go, where, where would you guys stay? We, um, were paying the rent on a, a little house in the town of Grand Guave. Uh, the property we bought for the mission is across the river. It's on the other side of the river that runs through Grand Guave. And, uh, we just had paying the rent for this little, this house and our friend was living in there at that time. And that's where we would come when we went to Haiti. But we hadn't been able to bring teams because it was just a small house and there was nowhere to bring a team. So by the time we were able to get our property, build our compound and build a, a really nice guest lodge compared to everything else around there, uh, we were able to start bringing teams down. And uh, the first team, I think, that came down was the Peterborough Paramedics and a church from Mississauga, uh, Arendelle Bible Chapel. They brought a team down, and it was pretty rough then. We really hadn't done much finishing in this lodge. But as the years went on, we were getting more and more teams till we were having 10, 15, 18 teams down in a year. 
and we would um, bring them back to back. So they came Wednesday, they left Wednesday, and the new team arrived on the same Wednesday that they left sort of thing. And so we were able to bring mission teams, building teams, work teams, uh, medical teams, and many of them came back year after year. So I think some of them have been coming for seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the people on the team often change a little bit, but we have so many of the same ones coming back year after year that they f- see our Haitian staff as family. It just kind of, they just love it. And honestly, it changes the teams coming down as much as it changes the Haitians that are so excited to see them. You can't go to that country and not encounter uh, a powerful God and see the victory that's being ha- taken over the powerful enemy. And when they see these kids that are healthy and strong, we've been feeding for years and years, and we're seeing them grow up through our schools, and now we're hiring them back on staff. It's, it's an amazing storyline to see how God is just performing miracles every day in that little country on that little five-acre package of land. And when you guys go down... How long do you guys typically stay? Like, obviously, these teams, like you said, they're coming in week after week. How much in a normal year, how much time would you and Gord try to spend down there? I think the longest we stayed one time was three months. I was exhausted because uh, Gord will, when we're there with these teams, they come in. Everybody comes in fresh and ready to do everything. And so by the end of the three months, I was exhausted. And I was actually, I think I was starting to get a little sick. So we cut it back so we would only do two months at a time. And then we would make sure we we have a big family at home. So we wanted to make sure that we have time for our family too. We have 14 grandkids. And um, I don't want to miss out on their growing up. So we would make sure we're home for uh, most of November and December. And then we would be home for the summer. We would um, be home for, well, the rainy season starts in Haiti at May and the hurricanes come. And we've been trapped there for two different hurricanes and not able to get out. And we were really grateful to be there. That was important that we were there for both those hurricanes. Uh, it was, uh, we were able to bring in people from town, little elderly women that lived in shacks, that their shacks were gone the next day if we hadn't brought them into our compound. So that, that we found that a privilege, and now we, we, the Haitian team knows to do that, even if we're not there. So they bring them in. They board everything up. They put away all the equipment, and, and uh, they've learned to do that really well. But uh, we always were home for the summer, and we spent family time May, June, July, August. And then we haven't been able to get back, so we've had some great family time up until, the, up until now, but we really are wanting to get back as soon as possible yeah hopefully soon you guys can get back down there yeah for sure um with all that with all that voodoo and and the different things going on down there um i'm sure there's lots of injuries and different things have you guys seen uh, a lot of healing and different things like that from teams coming down and praying for people yeah and even when there aren't teams there we see incredible miracles we don't see them here because i think if we get a headache or an injury here we take a pill we go see the doctor but down there many times we didn't have the doctor and we didn't have the pills our clinic was empty 
and we there was one girl that came in and she had sliced off the entire side of her foot from a metal roof. She was picking up mangoes off a metal roof and it had carved the whole side of her foot off. And she came, she had gone to a clinic and they just wrapped gauze around it. So by the time she got to me, it was filthy and stuck. And um, I really, I'm not a nurse. I've raised six kids who are you know, somewhat accident prone. So I have a little experience in the medical field, but I cleaned it, took the bandage off and saw that her side of her foot was missing. And all I had was polysporin, fresh gauze, and, and I could put a sock over it to keep it dry and clean. And then I prayed. And um, our we have Haitian members that speak fluent English as well. And they would translate for me when I was praying in English because praying Creole for me right now is still, you know, it's not my mother tongue. So I, I can pray more fluently in English. And he would translate that for her. She came back three weeks later and her foot was completely restored. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Uh, we have ha- we have seen incredible healing miracles in that clinic. Sometimes we have nothing. There was one man that came that was covered in oozing sores. He could hardly move. He was elderly. And these were weeping, oozing sores. I went to the pharmacy and there was so there just wasn't any antibiotics. There was nothing to give him. Um, so I grabbed the polyspore and we... Polysporin and prayer, man. We do a lot with polysporin and prayer. <laughs> so I just took, put on some rubber gloves and rubbed him down with polysporin. He got dressed again. He went home and he came back praising God in the morning. He was completely healed. There wasn't one sign of a sore on him. Like, wow. Those are incredible things. And, and because we depend on prayer... We see the miracles. Yeah. We see incredible miracles there. And they're very exciting. And then to sometimes I come home and I forget about it until somebody asks, like you just did. And I start to remember I've treated gunshot wounds. They've come in and there's been gunshot wounds. Like fortunately for me, they were through and through. And uh, so it was just cleaning and treating. But they heal completely up, like gone. No infections. It's amazing. And, and so what what has been the response of some of these people after they've experienced these healings? Well, they come to church on Sunday morning. I can tell you that. They are in the front row at church on Sunday morning, and they're hearing the gospel, and they're hearing uh, about Jesus and, and who I was praying to and where that source of power is coming from. And uh, they often give their lives to Jesus. Uh, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they come once or twice and go away and don't come back. And, uh, sorry. That's all right. But, um, it, it's an opening for us because they, they know who we're praying to. Yeah. And they know that the one they might be serving, who is the enemy, would not heal them. Like he doesn't do anything good for them. He brings evil. But this God is healing them. And saving them and providing for them and loving them because we just hug them. They just giving a hug sometimes is sometimes when we first got there and started hugging, they back up because they thought we we're going to hit them or something. But now they expect it and they look forward to it. And, and uh, it's just a way of saying, you know, whisper in their ear, Jesus loves you. Yeah. There's power in that. Oh my goodness. So much. 
between you and me, I've never stopped hugging people over the last couple of years. (laughs) Didn't matter. Yeah. You know what? We got to do that. I guess we have to be a little more careful over here who we grab and hug, but down there they don't seem to mind. Yeah. So. Um, So you, it's just really intriguing too with the voodoo. So you talked a little bit about that. Have you, have you, uh, have you guys witnessed, or you were telling me a story upstairs, I don't know if you want to talk about that or, or a different story, but of of something voodoo-ish manifesting that you guys have seen down there and have seen like freedom from demonic possession, or can you share some stories about that? Because we like to... We like to hear yeah. the truth of what people experience here. Well, I can tell you the two of the books I wrote. One was Ulio's story, who was dedicated to Satan at birth and and met Jesus. And his life of redemption was still a battle between heaven and hell over years. And that it's an incredible story. And the other story was a man named Ajimel, who ruled Haiti for 72 years in evil. He said he had ceased being human and became an evil spirit. He was... Uh, he was over the presidents, over the militia. He was very powerful in that country, but he killed people to keep his power. He had to pay a price to Satan. So he had to, Satan would tell him how many lives he needed to be able to do this, um, whatever he wanted to do, cast this curse or whatever. And then when he he met Jesus one night, it's such an amazing story. I, I mean, it always just makes me smile when I think about it because he he had been trying to lure a young girl into his home one one day because he needed more lives to sacrifice. And uh, this girl instead told him about Jesus. And he was so angry with her that he went back at midnight to kill her in her home. And uh, instead he met Jesus there. because And Jesus took him down. He calls it his road to Damascus experience because he was... He was sick, he was lame, he was blind, he was everything after meeting Jesus, but he was redeemed. And then it's his story of the next several years of, of God working through his life and, and uh, dealing with all the things that he had allowed in his life. And this man became um, uh, an evangelist for the last 25 years of his life and had massive crusades and everybody in Haiti knows of him. Every, you can't even say his name without, some people tremble. And because he was so powerful and some are like, yes, we heard his story. It's amazing. So those two books are are great stories of redemption. But also, even in our mission, we see people who have been demonized that are coming in. Now, I have to tell, stop here and say, we, we have learned of the authority that Jesus has given us over the enemy. And uh, being executive director, especially, I know I have I've been given an authority, but always through the power of the name of Jesus. Mm. And I've learned to make sure that that also is in my declaration when I bind something. But uh, we have bound Satan and told him he's not allowed on our compound. But we asked Jesus to give us angels. So we had a girl come and visit once who is what you might say a seer. She, she's been given the gift of, of seeing um, spiritual beings. And uh, she works in a deliverance ministry. Uh, and she came onto the compound and she said, you know, I see the dark figures on the outside of the gate, but inside I see angels. And she did not know that that was what we were praying. And we told her, you know, that's exactly what we ask God for. 
Mm. And we claim for this mission because there's so much darkness there that is accepted. It's not hidden. It's out front, center. It's um, a, a part of their, a very huge part of their culture being the national religion. And uh, we've had demonic, we did have a demonic, are you thinking about the young guy that in the church service? Yeah, yeah. Think, okay. Yeah. So this one Sunday, this uh, young lad who had just been baptized, he had, was born into a very demonic family, very powerful. They uh, worshipped Agua, the god of the sea, I believe it is. And he, the spirits would only manifest through this one young boy. They always choose one, usually in a family, that they will manifest. So these parents who were being paid to cast curses or spells or whatever would have to um, call the spirits into this boy. So this, when this boy came to Jesus on our compound to the mission, when he came to Jesus, the spirits were angry. And they weren't going to give up easily. So one Sunday morning... Uh, when we were having communion and we were, they were singing about um, nothing but the blood of Jesus and they're passing the communion around. And, and this young man was at the front and he stood up and his body was rigid and his face was changed and his voice was not his own. And he was um, shouting and shaking his fist and we could tell right away he was being demonized. And it's, I just looked at uh, Willie, who was a pastor right then, and I wondered, why isn't he stopping everything to pray? And as I watched this young man, two elders stepped forward at the front of the church, and they just, they didn't touch him. They just kept singing. Everybody around this young man who was screaming, shaking his fist, was still just singing and passing the, you know, the emblems around. And this uh, young boy worked his way out of the bench and stood at the front of the church in the aisle. And the elders just quick came and stood in front of him. He's still screaming and shaking his fist and, and screaming obscenities and, and horrible things. But they kept singing. Nobody looked. And I'm wondering, why don't they stop service and pray over him? Anyways, the, the two elders just kind of walked towards him as he he jerked back in the aisle like someone had hit his chest with a fist, an invisible fist, was striking this young boy and driving him backwards down the aisle. And every time he he was driven back, the elder stepped forward and stepped forward. And so anyways, it they he ended up right out of the church, and the elders circled him, and they prayed over him, and he calmed down. And the elders went back, and this service never started and stopped. And I said to Julio after, why, why didn't you stop and pray for him? And Julio said, because uh, Satan... He wants to he wants to distract and interrupt, and we won't let him. So we just ignore it, and uh, the elders just you know know what to do. They know how to deal with that. And uh, the young man the next day came back. To make a longer story short, he came back, and I he came up to me, and I said, "How are you doing today? Are they gone?" The spirit's gone. He goes, oh, yes. Yeah, they're gone. And I said, great. Let me take your hand. I just put my hands on his hands and said, let me pray for you. And instantly his body went rigid, his face twisted, and his voice, that voice came back that was not his own. And he started, you know, speaking in Creole. And um, I, I just realized that they weren't gone. So having learned what God had been teaching me, and seeing what was done, I knew that I, in the power of the name of Jesus, I could take authority over this young man. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did that and prayed over him and told the demons, you have to go. This child belongs to God. 
He is God's child now. You have no right to either in him or on this compound. And he went still and slumped. And uh, as far as I know, that was a few years ago. He has just been gone on for the Lord. And they have never come back. I'm sure his parents are very disappointed, but we are thrilled. So, <laughs> yes. Anyways, that's that's sort of some of the things that you could see quite often down there, and it is not familiarly seen here. I know. I, I don't believe that the churches see that too often. Uh, but uh, we are ready. We are not afraid. We know that Jesus died to give us the authority, and we are willing to take it. And this has given us, it's propelled us on a different spiritual journey. Because as soon as we got eyes to see what the enemy was up to and how, how he attacks, and as we see it at home, it, it has given us such a peace. And um, I don't know, just the ability to go forward in our faith, claiming God's presence, his power, his um, um, healing, in ways that we never had before and knowing and seeing things happen and knowing that God is in this. He, he has, uh, what, how do I say this? He's, if we declare things that, that uh, God has given us, then we know we are declaring the will of heaven. And when we declare the will of heaven here on earth, we're going to see God move in amazing ways. We're going to see things happen that we might not see if we don't. Because as soon as Satan hears us speaking God's will over a, a, a problem or an issue or um, a, an illness even, as soon as we understand, we have to know our scripture because it has to be backed by scripture. We can only declare what we know to be truth, yeah. God's truth. And when we stand up and declare that, or speak over something with that, then we know God is going to move and, and uh, earth is going to be shaken. Yeah. Um, Heather, what, what are your hopes for the near future for your ministry in Haiti and, and how that will impact your life here too? Like, so what are your hopes for, for that ministry in Haiti and, and what will that give you and Gord to bring back to share here with people, with your family and people that you encounter here? Well, that's a good question. Um, I know one thing that we are expanding in our ministry in Haiti is something God has called us to. He calls us to feed the hungry, clothe the ones that have no clothes, house the ones that need it, and to visit those in prison. I mean, that's scripture, right? That's, and uh, we are now just putting into place a ministry for the prisoners in Haiti. Now I have to tell you, prison in Haiti is not like prison in Canada. Uh, we know of a man, I've just writing a, a story of this young man who was in prison for many years and the cell was nine feet by three feet. It's supposed to house two people. But he said there were many times there were up to 20 and 25 in there. And nobody could sit. You only stand. You, you would never have a place to sit or lie down. And it was got so bad that their legs would swell and burst and they would die. But they were still just in this cell. And they would have a hard time getting the, the officers to come and take the dead ones out. It, he said it's a horrific experience. It's, they're not fed. 
They don't provide food. They don't provide water. The only times that the prisoners get anything to eat or drink is if a family comes, and they usually have to bribe the guard, so they have to bring enough for the guard and the prisoner. So we really believe, even though this wasn't originally something we had thought we were doing, we, I've just been impressing on me so much. In the, and, and, and I talked to Julio. I say, Julio, God is pushing this prison ministry to me, and I know it's going to stretch your budget. But we, I really believe that this is a huge thing that he wants to do now. And Uli said, I've been hearing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So we are going to start within the next week or two. We are actually starting a prison ministry. We just have to be able to um, raise the funds to buy all the food and the water. And, you know, if we have to pay off guards to get our guys in, we, we do that because um, that's just bringing Jesus into a, a very dark and dismal place, a, a place where they have no hope. There is no hope there. So that's one of the things that we're looking forward to beginning with our ministry. That is a, that is a horrible, that's a horrible image. Yeah, it, it is very, there? it's terrible. Yeah. A lot of them never come out because they just die. And uh, But this, this man, his name is Yanel, and I'm excited to write a story because God got him out. And some amazing things happen, but that's for another day. Yeah. Well, Heather, thank you very much for coming uh, today and sharing some of these stories. Um, just love hearing these true personal experiences down there and really appreciate the work you're doing down there. Um, the books that you've written, where can where can people get, get your books? You can get them on Amazon. You can get them at Barnes & Noble. You can get them in Chapters. Uh, I think any retailer would at least be able to order them online. So that's... Or me. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you. And if people have been inspired today and want to uh, donate or support uh, Hope Grows, where can they do that? That would be Hope Grows Haiti in Canada or Hope Grows... Haiti Inc. in the U.S. That's great. Thanks for sharing with us, Heather. Thanks, Todd. It's been great. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope you were really encouraged by this crazy story of what's going on in this country and how a couple would just pour their lives into going down there and serving these people. It's amazing what can happen, what we can see when we open our hearts and say, we're all in. God really wants all of our heart. Have you really opened your heart? Are you all in? Remember, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And we are all called to something. Be blessed.